the issue that we see in cerebral palsy is a lot of the children actually have mixed movement disorders, so they have both spasticity and dyskinesia, and that's where I will focus a lot of today's attention on, because they're the groups where sometimes in classification and identification and also management, they're the trickier group. Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this edition, we hear from Adrienne Harvey on dyskinesia in children with cerebral palsy. Dr. Adrian Harvey is a paediatric physiotherapist and senior research officer working with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She also leads the Dyskinesia Research Group at our CRE. We'll hear a lot about dyskinesia throughout this episode, but first, why are we having this conversation now? Dyskinetic cerebral palsy is a really good example of a complex condition that has a very that has very little evidence to actually guide clinical practice. So we can't we can't actually afford to wait until the evidence is there because as we know that's a long process. So in the meantime, we need to synthesise the best the best evidence that we've got to date, use clinical expertise and clinical consensus to help drive clinical care. The three overarching themes that we're doing research are around identification and measurement, interventions and the lived experience. These research priorities um, came out of a focus group day that we held nearly two years ago now when we just formulated the group and we sat down for a day and we invited um, four very very diligent and very, um, what's the word, involved parents to come along and help guide our research directions because we sat there and said where we thought the research gaps were and where we were heading and then we had some very good feedback from the parents saying but you've missed this, you've missed that and that was really instrumental in helping to guide our research program. So what is dyskinetic cerebral palsy? This is the surveillance of cerebral palsy in Europe or the SCPE classification. This and other visuals Adrienne refers to a link to in the show notes. In this room know that children with cerebral palsy are classified um, according, often according to their predominant movement disorder. So in the cerebral palsy population in Australia, the most predominant uh, or the most frequent predominant movement disorder is spasticity. So about 85% of children with CP in Australia would be classified as predominantly spastic. The group we're talking about is this dyskinetic group. So those children that are classified as predominantly dyskinetic account for about 6.4% in Australia. So it is a small group. However, the issue that we see in cerebral palsy is a lot of the children actually have mixed movement disorders. So they have both spasticity and dyskinesia. And that's where I will focus a lot of today's attention on because they're the groups where sometimes in classification and identification and also management, they're probably the the trickier, trickier group. So dyskinetic cerebral palsy is then further subdivided into a dystonic CP and choreoathetotic CP and the dystonia is the more frequent of those two that we see in children with cerebral palsy. So what is dyskinetic CP? So it's a motor disorder characterised by changes in muscle tone and posture with varying element of involuntary movement and it's the involuntary movement that really causes a lot of issues for the child. Um, As I've just highlighted on that diagram, the SCPE divides it further into dystonia and choreoathetosis. But also to make note that often in dyskinetic CP, they're both present and disentangling exactly what movement disorder these kids have is often quite difficult. And there's a lot of argument around about whether or not we should be um, drilling down to the minutiae of what um, movement disorder they have because sometimes it's very difficult to actually pull them apart. Adrian also talked about what dyskinesia means for a child with cerebral palsy. Well, it does frequently occur in children with cerebral palsy. 
So although I stated that children with predominant dyskinesia account for 6.4% of those in Australia with cerebral palsy, a lot of the children we see have spasticity and dyskinesia, so it's actually seen quite frequently. The, the involuntary muscle contractions that come along with the dyskinesia do impact on everyday functioning, including mobility, self-care, communication, particularly communication, um, comfortable positioning and transferring, and play and participation. And the, the, those involuntary movements are often quite painful and distressing for the child, which then impacts on the whole um, family dynamics. So we do have management strategies at our disposal. At, at our, at our disposal. Um, a lot of the management strategies you see here are management strategies we use for you know, most children with cerebral palsy, apart from, apart from probably deep brain stimulation, which is particularly indicated in this group. But what we don't know is which of those interventions is, is the right one for which child at which particular time in their life. So we still have lots of answers around what we should, how we should actually be managing children with dyskinetic cerebral palsy. Some of the issues that impact management, um, it, until recently, it wasn't recognised <coughs> consistently. So a lot of the children that in the past were classified as spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy, we now know are actually dyskinetic. So there's some issues around what children have been classified as. Management of dyskinesia is quite tricky. We, don't, we certainly don't have the answers, and it's very different and not as predictable as managing spasticity. Dystonia in children with cerebral palsy is secondary, so it behaves quite differently to the primary dystonias that we would see in children with other neurological conditions. And as I keep harping on about, many children with cerebral palsy have a mixed movement disorder. So some of the trick is working out which is predominant, which should we be actually targeting, but also to be aware that if you target one, you're likely to impact the other. And sometimes when you target spasticity and do something for the spasticity, it doesn't always work in your favour about what it does to the actual dystonia or dyskinesia, so you just need to be aware. Uh, we all know that cerebral palsy is a very heterogeneous condition, so children, two children that might look reasonably similar can react in very different ways to um, different interventions, to the same intervention. And the, probably the underpinning this is there is limited, avail limited evidence available for most treatments for dyskinetic cerebral palsy. So at the moment, clinical expertise and judgment is driving management, and I think people are doing a good, a good job, but I do think we need some clearer guidelines. And as a result, there is variable practice amongst clinicians. So we can't wait for the evidence, as I said earlier. So what we need to do is have some sort of best evidence clinical guidelines, um, and we need to continually drive research in the areas of most importance. So as a step towards this, we now have the newly developed American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine Care Pathway for Dystonia in CP. Again, you'll find a link in the show notes. Um, this was spearheaded by Dr. Dar or Professor Darcy Feelings in Canada and myself and James Rice were the Australian contributors towards this care pathway and you'll see the list of people who are involved um, come up soon but basically if you go into the American Academy website, go into the care pathways, you'll see a number of care pathways either uh, available or about to come and a number of people from this institute have contributed to these pathways but if we click on the dystonia one um, basically you have the tab. So the first is the evidence summary, which I'll go through basically, so you don't need to read it now. I'll go through it throughout the talk. Then this next section is what is the actual evidence. Um, and then there's, there's also the pictorial of the care pathway. So that's where you find the information. And it's a very useful tool to look at. As Adrienne says, there's a lot to read on the American Academy website. 
Let's hear about the activity of the Dyskinesia Research Group. I think most of us would agree that we don't really know that we've got the exact right tools to measure this in children with cerebral palsy. And just to note that around responsiveness to change, a lot of the studies that were included in this review didn't actually set out to test responsiveness. It's just that there was pre-post data from a number of interventions that we could use the data to look at responsiveness. And the other thing to note about responsiveness is that a tool um, is only responsive to certain treatments. So a tool might be responsive to something like deep brain stimulation, but it's not responsive to Botox, for instance. But the upshot of that is that the Barry Albright dystonia scale is still the most commonly reported scale and most clinically useful. Uh, the BADS and the DIS, so the DIS is the dyskinesia impairment scale, were the only two that were actually specifically developed for children with cerebral palsy. The DIS is the only tool that considers both dystonia and chorioathetosis, so all the others just really look primarily at dystonia. And further studies are needed to really test the psychometric properties. We've heard Adrian talk about care pathways for dystonia. Do the same principles apply to children with cerebral palsy? So there is no studies out there that specifically look at rehab strategies for dyskinetic cerebral palsy. So most of what we're doing is based on the evidence that we have for cerebral palsy in general, but there are none looking specifically at the dyskinetic group. So this is based, this is based on clinical expertise, and I think we're all doing different things, but I guess the overarching themes should be, and this won't be rocket science to people in the audience, but ensuring therapy is goal-directed, avoiding asymmetry and aiming for symmetrical positioning to enhance motor control, optimising seating and positioning with good stability and support, Considering orthoses and splints, but we also know that this is a group of children that often don't tolerate um, orthoses, so that just to be aware of that as well. And really importantly, considering the needs for communication supports, because this is an area that children often, communication is an area that kids with dyskinetic cerebral palsy often have a lot of issues with. So then we move on to this general, um, whether the dystonia is generalised and focal, what do we do next? If it's focal, then a trial of botulinum toxin can be done. Um, if it's generalised, then oral medications tend to be the first line treatment. So what's the evidence for Botox for focal dystonia in cerebral palsy? Well, there were two papers that fit the inclusion criteria, but they were producing class 3 and class 4 evidence, so it was fairly low. Uh, and essentially, there was inadequate data to say that it reduces dystonia, improves motor function, reduces pain, and caregiving was not assessed. So we don't have enough out there for um, Botox for this group in particular. So this, the guidelines state, and I don't know that everyone will agree with uh, exactly the way it's written in the guidelines, but that's all right. We're all allowed to have um, our clinical opinions, but it's, they're good guidelines, particularly for um, doctors that are starting out in this area, I think it's a good thing to follow. So the, thing, the first thing is begin, the first line is to be, begin with oral, baclofa, oral baclofen. Um, and particularly if the child's got pain, difficulty sleeping. Now, if baclofen isn't being effective, then you can also add or replace with trihexyphenidol. Other oral medications should be considered for specific indications. So the intermittent use of benzodiazepines for dystonic storms or disturbed sleep, gabapentin for dystonia associated with pain, and clonidine can also be considered for disturbed sleep associated with dystonia. So what's the evidence? 
Well, for trihexyphenidol, there's a little bit. Um, there were two studies producing class two and class three evidence, possibly ineffective though for reducing dystonia um, and improving motor function and improving caregiving uh, and inadequate data to say what it does around reducing pain. Now, despite the fact that it's been um, labelled as possibly uh, ineffective, the, it's still there as a second line treatment in the care pathway and it's particularly useful for kids that also that drool as well. For levodopa, there was one study which produced class two evidence which um, came to the conclusion that it was possibly ineffective for improving motor function and the other categories weren't assessed. The general consensus was that levodopa should not be used in this population of kids unless there's a um, suspicion that the child actually has a dopamine responsive dystonia. For the other meds, oral baclofen, benzos, gabapentin, clonidine, the NOTE studies actually fitted the inclusion criteria. So there are some studies out there, but they're looking at the CP population in general and they haven't reported the data for the kids with dystonic CP separately. I think most of our clinicians would agree that gabapentin is useful, which leads me on to the next thing. But um, what are we doing as a research group around um, oral medications? Well, quite a lot. Um, and the first thing is we have a Cochrane review of Artane or trihexyphenidyl, which has been driven by Louise Baker. And that uh, protocol has been published recently and we're now up to search and data extraction. And the two areas that I've been heavily involved with is looking at gabapentin for managing pain um, in these children and also prescribing practices, prescribing practices of doctors. So at the moment we are running a pilot study of gabapentin for managing pain in this group with the aim to um, gather preliminary data on the effectiveness of it for managing pain and also to obviously to trial recruitment processes, the outcome measures we think are useful and the side effects which may impact on a future RCT. So it's a case series of 10 children aged 6 to 18 years who have dystonia um, and significant sort of accompanying pain and they're, at the, they're being recruited from the developmental medicine and rehab clinics from this hospital. So they're screened to make sure they're eligible, they have a baseline assessment, they start their medication and go on an incremental dosage until we find the optimal dosage and they're assessed at six weeks and 12 weeks. And we've just had our um, first child through who, and it all went well, so we're looking for more um, if people have children that are eligible. Our outcome measures are around feasibility of the protocol, but also around pain, comfort and dystonia, because that's what we're interested in. So we're using the paediatric pain profile, the CP child, the FACES pain scale, the care and comfort hypertonicity questionnaire, and we're also using pain-related goal setting with the COPM and the Barry Albright dystonia scale for measuring the dystonia. And just when I thought, I, as a physio, I would never touch another drug study again, we then went and got some more money to, uh, to roll this out um, this year. At, um, we're going to roll it out to the Children's Hospital Westmead and um, Women and Children's Adelaide and now potentially also Brisbane um, to really trial it at those sites as well. So that's exciting. Adrienne is also looking into prescribing practices in this area. I was hearing a lot of very inconsistent, uh, uh, a lot of inconsistencies around, around this. So the first thing I did, which was a fairly small study, was just look at what happens on, the, on this site uh, for doctors in rehab and developmental medicine. So 11 doctors took part in this study 
and we got data from 57 children uh, and showed that medication was prescribed primarily for children who are aged 3 to 10, classified within GMSCS levels 4 and 5, so that's those children that are predominantly non-ambulant, and children with a mixed movement disorder. So what we saw here, see here, is that gabapentin and oral baclofen were the most frequently prescribed. Uh, oral baclofen, for 10 of 11 um, physicians, oral baclofen was the first line medication. And just to, I guess, reiterate, this is just indicative of what happens in these two um, de departments at this hospital, so it's not really generalisable. But what we found was that gabapentin was most likely to be prescribed to improve pain and comfort, whereas baclofen was prescribed when there were multiple indications. Dosage regimens varied between doctors, but also within doctors, um, particularly for the use of gabapentin and diazepam. All physicians monitored adverse events through regular clinic follow-up or phone calls. Measurement of medication effectiveness using um, was primarily through parent report and impairment-based clinical examination in the clinics. And the use of objective measurement tools were only used in the context of a multidisciplinary rehab team. And I think we know why that happens. It's around logistics and resources. Thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. To find out more about our CRE, head to our website at crecp.org.au. We're excited to let you know that we're partnering with the Oz Academy to record a number of sessions at our upcoming education symposia. Keep an eye out for these on the Oz Academy website. Trixie Studio.